Welcome back to the Brew Theology Podcast. This is Ryan, and on episode 72, we're talking about fear part two with Jeff, Christina, Ray, Nate, Janelle, and myself. We'll get into some jujitsu in this episode. Stay tuned for that. If you like this episode or any of our episodes, please do us a large, massive, ginormous favor. Go over to iTunes, rate it, review it, and then share it because we're online. We're on social media, brew underscore theology, also Instagram. If you want to be creative with some kind of picture as you're listening to the podcast, we're at Brew Theology, also on Facebook. And as we mentioned in this first episode, part one of Fear, we have a Facebook group now. I didn't know there's a difference between pages and groups. I, I, I did, but then I forgot. So the, the idea of a page, right, is kind of like advertise and all that jazz. But the group, the group's idea is actually to be social. So speaking of social media, we want your participation and your feedback and your comments. And so if you're a listener, please go to that Brew Theology group page, which is different than a page. It's a group. And that's over on Facebook. And we'd love to chat with you there. And yeah, Thank you guys for listening. Thank you for your support. If you want to support us in any way, uh, this is something I always forget to say. We are on Patreon as well. So if you go to the brewtheology.org website, uh, there's a place where you can donate and support. And so there's two different ways to do that. If you're a partner organization, another affiliated chapter, it's super cheap. And the other way is if you just support our work, you can go to Patreon and uh, just share the love uh, for as little as $1 a month. Uh, we've had somebody who's just recently done that, $5 a month and up. So Thank you again uh, for, man, we get to do this and um, couldn't do it without you. So much love on the other side. Peace. And so speaking to, into this system, and then I know we have so many thoughts here because now we're starting now we're starting to brew. An hour in, we're brewing. But I, I can't tell you how many colleague friends of mine throughout the years who have come to me. It's like the Nicodemus in the night. Because I'm the safe guy, I guess. Hey, it must must be my Spurs hat that I wear, because that's God's team. Whatever. Hey, there we go. There's my Spurs plug. If you're listening, Pam. Whatever. So, uh, but yeah, people who have said I don't really uh, know if I believe this, I, and I or I don't believe this, and yet they have to they have to believe it because they're getting the paycheck and they got to feed their families. And so, to me, that's that's kind of frightening. Isn't it? I mean, speaking of fear, like you have people who actually work for this system, the system that has to keep it afloat by believing these certain things. And yet people who work there don't even believe it, but you have to go along with it. And um, man, if, if we could have a place where you could be free and work in these places to say, I don't know if I believe in the Trinity or I don't know if I believe in the virgin birth. I mean, these are things that people have come to me like, and these are, I mean, we've all struggled with whatever these like these theological core values and tenets of the faith are. And then we've come to the other side, either becoming atheist or post whatever, you know. And uh, why can't we just allow these things to happen? There's a, I, I agree with, you said that you don't think that it's all intentional. And I agree with that, that, that a lot of times people are striving, but they don't know exactly what they're striving for. And if they get put in a situation where you get rewarded for acting in a way that's not what would you say, godly or biblical or or honorable? Then, but but the rewards are immediate. Then, well, that's a bad system, right? And we also uh, a lot of us don't realize it, but obviously, um, our brains are the human version of software, right? And um, all of all of the world around us, including the thoughts that we have, are programming us and conditioning us constantly, and so. Some people in a position like that might condition themselves so much, not even realize that they're 
manipulating people. I was thinking about how there's, there's like if let's say that you were a, you're a Native American who hasn't encountered the gospel before, and then you know a missionary comes in and starts talking to you, right? Just just as a thought experiment, from no exposure to Christianity to to complete exposure, there's there's this interesting double whammy where you know the priest says it's a good news bad news situation. The good news is you're going to live forever. The bad news is you're going to burn in hell forever. So you've just got a whole new level of concerns that you didn't you didn't know you had, right? You were like, man, I was just I was just trying to find a lunch, you know, and and all of a sudden you have to be worried about uh, eternal damnation, and so that's like it's sort of an unnatural fear if you think about it in in the sense of like the the knowledge. It's not an innate knowledge that you have that you're gonna go to hell if you don't if you don't do something. You know what I mean? So as you were talking um, about church growth, I was thinking about the little I know about the history of the church and about revival movement at the beginning of the 20th century and how focused on church growth that movement was, um, specifically in the West and here in America, um, and how traditions and denominations and the patterns of Christianity that we have um, in our culture are very much defined from that movement. Well, it actually, and I'm super rusty on this. I used to have this down, but it goes back even farther than that. So we can trace back all the way to the Puritans that there became to be this pattern of kind of church dedication, that was how religion functioned. So in the first generation, you have the highly committed, highly legalized, highly um, dedicated believer. Their children start to um, experience that a little differently. They don't always know what the reasons are, but they know they need to do these things. And so they do them and they move from being a movement of the heart to being a movement of, of law. And as that transforms into the next generation, now you have a generation that's doing things, but they don't know why they're doing it. And as they go through that transition, then you start to have this breakaway of uh, basically, you know, the sinful. And so then to control that, we've got to have a revival. It wasn't always called that early on, um, but that is what happened in the 1800s as you saw these sweeping mass revivals across America was to bring the culture back and redeem it and bring it back in line and get get. So like when I hear the calls right now of it's not about these weapons we carry around, it's about our hearts. OK, I would have cried that cry 10 years ago. But the problem with that cry now is that what you're demanding from me is not just that I deal with this, this issue at hand. You want to control me. You, you want to force me to believe not only something, but to believe like you believe. And I don't have the power to make someone believe like I believe. And if I'm doing that, then I shouldn't be do what, doing what we're doing tonight. But to add to that, what you were saying about that revival movement, 
those revivals were led by people that were very going back to kind of what you said earlier that were very strong on charisma and not so strong on theology i mean i think of oh sure like billy graham um you know i i think I'm not sure how many people, but I certainly in my lifetime went to a Billy Graham crusade, mm-hmm. you know, um, even as a church member. Um, and he is someone who I, I believe made his whole career off of his charisma to get up and put together a good show far more than the depth of theology that he knew or preached from the stages that he preached i think and then and then what we see following that is his son who now uses that platform to manipulate um i think that apple fell pretty far yeah i mean i think i I will defend billy a little bit and that what i've read about him and the biography and people that knew him that i think he himself really did believe what he was saying like really um had a passion to see people experience God the way he did. And his charisma was absolutely in the equation, but I haven't really read um, people talking about like, like the bad behavior in the, in the way that I think we see it more often now, but absolutely. And I'm not questioning his sincerity, Yeah, but he certainly preached that same very excuse me, but very fundamentalist Baptist message of believe this because tomorrow you could die and wind up burning in hell for all of eternity. Well, and it's interesting because, so if I say the phrase, sinners in the hands of an angry God, how many of you have heard that? Jonathan Edwards. Everybody, Jonathan Edwards, terrible preacher. From everything we know historically, he was a terrible preacher, but he had... He read the script. He read the script. He had this charisma or whatever, even though he was just not impressive live, but it did the thing, and it it brought people back, and the cycle started again. And, and I think, you know, you talk about fears for good reasons or not so good reasons. I mean, I really fear, like, the next revival. We're way overdue. We are way overdue in America for a massive revival, and that terrifies me because I'm not coming to the altar this time. I'm not going to do it. I think and, that's okay. Yeah. I think it's okay. And, and I think that that's, that's, that's where this, this fiery language we hear right now, it's all about the heart. Okay, but you don't get to decide my heart. God and I, if, if I believe in God, God and I do that. Um, and I do that in my community and the way I live and the way I interact. But like random person knocking on my door, it's it's not your problem. And I'm not going to come and bow down just because you're worried about America. I'm sorry. And so I I feel like that like that's a weird dead end we're at is where does religion go? Where does this Christianity that has driven our culture for almost 300 years What's going to happen to it? Yeah, do you, I'm just kind of curious, and I and I posed this question online a few weeks back, and I didn't get any responses, which makes me sad. So I, I'm a hope-filled guy. I want to know that there's a better tomorrow. So when it comes to Christianity, those, those are Somebody my... Somebody has to be. I have to be. I can't be a Debbie Downer. <laughs> wah, wah. 
Uh, no, you know, you're not fully a Debbie Downer. Come on. Don't, don't put yourself in that box. Cause I know there's hope in you. I've seen it. There's a sparkle. Okay. Now I, I, I'm curious. So oh, here we go. Here we go. Darth Vader. <laughs> Turn towards the light. Oh my gosh. Okay. And here's my question for you all too. And maybe we can end with something like this. Um, are you seeing these types of things emerging from our culture in small pockets? Because it's maybe not on the large, large uh, scale stage, not going to be in like maybe the church growth, mega church movements, or it could be. Um, I don't want to necessarily say that they're all a certain way because they're not. Uh, I know there's amazingly beautiful, like mega church leaders out there doing good stuff. So, but, but where are you seeing, I guess, hope, overcoming fear, overcoming manipulation, overcoming guilt and shame, and living that loving kindness within a, a religious um, vein, if you will? As you, as you asked that question, I was reminded of a video I saw on Facebook um, of a town hall meeting that President Obama gave, right, I think within the last year of his presidency. And a gentleman from the audience got up and asked him a question about um, about gun control and the kind of democrat the democratic stance on gun control and uh, and the gentleman from the audience was um, really expressing a lot of those same um, talking points that you could hear in conservative media that Democrats want to you know take away everyone's guns and you know, no one will have any guns to defend themselves, etc. Um, and President Obama responded to him so well, so respectfully, and um, said, you know, just essentially spent about half of his time in the response saying, we don't want to take away any of your guns. Um, and then spent the other half of the response saying, but in the same way that we need legislation for cars, we also need legislation for these dangerous weapons. President Obama's stance on gun control wasn't my point, but my point was that for the last eight years prior to the most recent presidential election, I felt like there was a lot of hope in our culture for moving away from this fear-mongering to having adult conversations about real issues um, because I feel like that was the person that kind of was our ceremonial head um, as president of the United States. Um, he was a guy who wasn't going to react out of emotion and just out of fighting the talking points. He was going to talk to people um, like rational adults. And he said that all the time. More recently, it's like a roller coaster. My hope went up and now my hope is falling. You know, I think that um, part of what makes me hopeful is the fact that people are having conversations like this. And uh, like, I'm not a, I'm not a technologist as a savior, but um, I think that the internet is making a lot of things possible that weren't possible before. It allows us to have this conversation and share it with a lot of people. And whether or not there's deep truth embedded in this conversation, it's the mode of conversation that we're having in which no one is right with a capital R, no one is dictating to anyone else what the answers are. And that kind of conversation has been so absent, in my opinion, like that conversation is only happening in basements, um, you know, prior to like 
1999 or something, right? It, only small groups of people that are experiencing um, growth together. But the fact that even as clumsy as my own personal reaching for knowledge and understanding is, the fact that I can can share that quest with you guys honestly and this type of conversation is happening not just in a religious setting but also in all kinds of other settings like um like this guy joe rogan has an interesting podcast where he he talks to all different kinds of people and you know he's a bit of a meathead but he's open to what lots of different kinds of people have to say and he allows them to share their message with people unedited by him. You know, he might challenge them just like you guys are challenging me. But, um, the fact that that type of conversation has become so popular shows this deep need in our culture for, in, in our, um, I don't know, in our setting or whatever, whatever it is that we've created here in America. Right. Uh, in, in terms of what conversations are happening on a national stage in Washington or in the mainstream media, people are exhausted of, soundbite conversation of easy answer conversation and they want to get into the details they want to know you know like what are your imperfect thoughts what are your what are your 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 deepest yearnings what are your hard answers what are your questions that don't have um a, a, an ABC pick from this list as the correct answer. Give me like a, give me something with nuance. Give me something with depth. Give me something that makes me want to go learn something else and not just, Oh, this is the easy answer to gun control. We need to pass these laws. Well, if, if it was easy, then somebody would have done it already. Right. And the, the way that we're having the conversation, I'm sorry, I'm ranting, but the way that we were having the conversation before was so limited and, the fact that the internet has both made that conversation possible, um, made sharing that conversation easier, and made people able to sort of democratize the voices that they want to hear is really great. And also the kind of transparency, and I don't know exactly how I feel about like WikiLeaks or this other type of information sharing, where the fact that information sharing has become possible, e easily possible, means that people can't hide as much as they used to be able to. And it means the political process will have to change. It means that the link between money and the government will have to change because people are just going to become more and more used to complete transparency and complete transparency is only going to be good for everyone. Hopefully the, the government won't be able to lock down on that type of stuff the way that they do in like China or um, other places where the information is completely controlled before the information causes change in a way that's really positive for for everyone. And so to wrap it up, I guess I would say what the information, what the internet is helping us understand is that everybody who pretends like they have capital A answers is is bullshitting. And um, and you know, kids don't want to put up with that stuff anymore. Like you're talking about with with the is it Parkland with the Parkland shooting? They they don't want to put up with your like, oh, you know, we just have to suffer this because freedom, right? They're like, no, we don't have to suffer this. Other countries are doing it better. Let's let's see if we can learn something and do something from what other people... And, and so these these voices that dominated the conversation, just like I'm dominating this conversation right now, uh, they're, they, they don't get to dominate the conversation anymore, and I think there's hope in that. So That's a good word.
Yeah. So um, I'm reminded of your last points where you were talking about, um, you know, how there's different countries that have freedom. Um, if anyone is a fan of Aaron Sorkin, he did the newsroom. And I would recommend go watching the first minute of the very first episode um, where he, the main character basically goes on a rant as to why America is not the best country there is. Um, it's, I mean, it's a great, it's like a great two minutes, what, however long it is, but it's, it's, it hits the nail on the head. Um, but also while you were talking at the beginning about how, you know, everyone's having their honest, these honest conversations in basements, um, it kind of reminded me of what Janelle said of maybe this is the next revival. Maybe it's not a spiritual one that we're maybe thinking of, maybe of it's a more intellectual revival whereas you know we're we we've come across especially in politics of i have to be right and you have to be wrong you know we have the democrats and the republicans good versus evil you know we we need to start being able to either agree to disagree or start coming together and be like i see your points on this you know, let's let's meet together and let's actually do something about it rather than, you know, oh, you're just you're just a crazy Republican who who's a gun toting, loving, you know, Second Amendment person. Whereas, you know, some people are like all guns are bad. I think for me, I see hope in what we're doing here. I think Theology has been um I mean, it has been life-giving to me and um, getting to engage with people all over Denver and all across the country who are working to have these conversations and do this kind of work. Um, and so I really think that, and I know these are happening in other places like Secular Hub is down the street. They're having this, these similar conversations. One of our uh, people that comes to our table often has a conversation group like this up in evergreen and so we have these conversations happening all around the country and i think that's hope and then the other place that i just have seen it is um church congregations that are lgbtq affirming affirming those spaces are so much open more open to these conversations than any other religious group that i've been in and I think that part of that has to do with when we're willing to start loving people for who they are and not who we demand to be, then that opens the door for us to have an authentic conversation, whether we agree or disagree. Um, but you have to take people as they are if you want to have a real conversation with them. And so I think we have to 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 make spaces for that and encourage that and and we have to individually be willing to come to the table and risk something, um, which is painful when you've been wounded and hurt. But without risking, um, we're never going to find that hope that we're looking for. I feel pretty much the same way here. Uh, you guys give me hope, you know, having these conversations. I tend to think, I, 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 I think mostly about trying my best every day to do my part to release um, a conscious type of energy in this world and practice presence. And um, I try to do that with every person that I come in contact with, whether you're a friend or a stranger, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, 
I think that's where I find the hope. I find a tremendous amount of, of personal uh, gratification in making a, a genuine connection, you know, with a person. Um, I can't say that was the case when I was in my 20s and my 30s, but nonetheless, it's, it's the case now. So if I had, did have to categorize myself or label myself, it would be as a secular humanist. Mm-hmm. So I've been thinking about this and I, I gave uh, Jeff like the first half of this at our at our first meetup and I think he liked it. So maybe I, I, I want to bounce this idea off you guys. Um, there's a verse that Jeff intentionally left out of the discussion because maybe the word fear in the verse doesn't mean the same fear as what we've been talking about. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So let me start at the end, which is to say that uh, I think that it's interesting that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So I think what the verse is telling us is something like um, you can start by fearing God, but th- then you, you can transition out of that maybe as your relationship deepens with God. But I really like this idea that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, partially because one of the things that I did when I came back to my faith was I started thinking about a lot of the verses and a lot of the stories that I'd had trouble with before. A lot of the ones that I thought, well, I can't even, I cannot understand what this story means in a way that allows me to to integrate it into my understanding. And when I came back and I started, I I, uh, I started thinking through a lot of those stories and in a different light, and and was able to come to a lot of peace with a lot of them. But this verse still troubled me a little bit, so I've been thinking about it a lot. And I think. I actually came to two different interpretations of it, and it has sort of this weird symmetry that's present in a lot of, like, let's say Jesus is the lion and the lamb, right? It's this weird metaphor where, where no, I don't know if it's weird, but it's it certainly seems contradictory on its face, right? Okay, so I like this symmetry, and I'm curious what you guys think about it. So there's two ways I can understand this verse. One is that uh, God is infinite, right? And that means that the amount of God that I can understand as a finite creature is always infinitely less than what God is. And that means that there's an infinite amount of God that I cannot know. And fear of the unknown is one of the deepest fears that, um, that motivates people, right? Fear of the other, fear of what's in the dark room when you stick your hand in there, fear of what will happen if you go to another country, probably nothing. But you're, you're, this, this default fear of the unknown is deeply built into us. So when you start to be able to grasp how much of God you're never going to understand as a finite creature, that's a scary thought. And it, requ- it starts to require you to be able to think about God as actually being infinite. Like, even the God that was infinite to the person who wrote that verse, or even the God of the person who wrote that verse, he didn't understand how big the universe was compared to what we understand of the universe, right? He thought that the stars were painted on the uh, the ceiling of the world, but now we understand how tiny the earth is in an infinite universe, and we believe that God being omnipresent and omniscient and, and whatever the other one is. Um, thank you. Our God is even bigger than the God of the man who wrote that verse, like, let's say, uh, in terms of physics. So the idea of a God who's everywhere throughout all of that and controls all of that, but still loves me is, is, uh, that's a scary thought, like, and not scary in like the werewolf sense, but, but scary in the sense of, of the, what some people would call the right interpretation of that verse as being, 
um, the awe of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But with any proper awe, there's a tinge of, of fear, right? Like standing on a, on a high mountain and, that, and looking over the world, the, the sense of scale, the awe, there's a little bit of fear that tinges that, you know? Okay. So then the other way I was thinking about that verse is that when you first learn about God, what you can contain inside yourself you 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 learn that God is omnipresent, omniscient, and omnipotent, but the most important thing about him is that he loves you. And so you learn a sort of, uh, a sort of, in Sunday school, right, you learn a sort of characteristics of God that allow you to feel comfortable with him and make you want to know more about him and things like that. But then as your relationship with God deepens, you're contemplating the nature of God and the fact that you're supposed to be more like Christ as God, that you're supposed to be perfect as Christ is perfect. And as you grow older and you, and you gain wisdom and you start to learn how far away that perfection is from you and how far you have to go to get there, that's also a scary thought. Like, I can get better every single day until I die and I still actually won't have approached the perfection of, of Christ as God. So there's an interesting symmetry there, right? Like what you don't know about God makes you scared of him. And what you do know about God also makes you scared of him or in awe of him either way. So I kind of like that, uh, that duality. And I'm curious what you guys think about that. So I, I've thought a lot about that verse in the past. Um, not, not particularly in, in this case. And the reason not particularly in this case is because um, I've heard that verse paired with two other verses that seem to almost bring it entirely full circle. Um, so the verse you brought up is the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Um, the second pairing is that God is love. And then the third pairing is the verse that says uh, perfect love drives out fear. And within those three, the idea, as it was explained to me by a dear friend, was this idea that if you're wise, you'll realize that the only thing in the universe to fear is God. But once you realize that, you also realize that God is love, and therefore there's nothing to fear about God, and so that love drives that fear out. Is that in Paul where he says, uh, don't fear those who can destroy your body, but fear those fear him who has... Uh, control over your soul. Jesus. The Jesus, according to the author. I like that a lot. That's good. I liked both of those interpretations. Very interesting. I'm kind of curious as somebody who does jujitsu, uh, is there a fear awe interchangeably with the mentor? When we speak of, of that, because earlier, and this wasn't on our rec- recorded time, I don't think, before you, yeah, no. Is, is this okay? We can always take this out, but um, you, you like the idea of having that that mentor, that leader, who uh, and there's there's a little bit of fear in that, and there's a little bit there's obviously a lot of trust that goes along in that. So, kind of curious how how that works for you and how you came into that place of of having the reverence to say, "Hey, lead me, teach me." That's interesting. Um, one of the first things that you have to do when you start training is you have to you have to lose your fear of the person who has complete control over you. Because when you get there, everyone is better than you. And everyone could choke you unconscious if they wanted to. 
So you, you get in these situations where someone is literally strangling you and they'll stop whenever you tell them to stop. But that's a line that a lot of people are uncomfortable with, right? They're not interested in getting into a situation where someone is about to strangle them to death and then just stops because they ask them to. So you, you, and then, and then the mentor, like, I don't even, I'm a, I'm a blue belt. I've been doing jujitsu for about four years and most black belts, unless they're like maybe a little smaller than me are not even that interested in rolling with me because it's boring for them. They can just do whatever they want with me and they, they don't learn anything from it. But on the converse side, they have so much control over me and over my body when I'm there that there's a healthy respect, right? You've, you've learned not to be terrified of them, but you also know not to push them, right? Don't, when you're, when you're training with somebody who can do whatever they want to you, if you get, if they're nice to you and allow you a brief window to exert some control over them, you better not, you know, headbutt them or, or do something that's going to make them angry because then you're going to find out what they're really capable of. So there is an interesting right. reverence for the master. It's like, you're not going to like, you're playing one-on-one with LeBron James. I'm not going to knock him in the nutsack. That's right. So that's right. respect. Don't kick him in the too much. Right. Yeah. But it, <laughs> so did anybody else have that Genesis 28, I believe is a chapter with Jake. Is that Genesis 28 with Jacob wrestling? with this uh, celestial being, the angel, God, whatever you want to call it. This, but that verse, that those verses are powerful when he's, you know, because, um, you know, he's kind of like, he, he can't overcome this this thing, whatever it is. But he's like, but he's saying, bless me, you know, right? He's like, give me my blessing. And I think there's there's a little bit of like bucking against the system of he should be scared to death of something that's going to like, it's a, like me playing against LeBron James. I should lose. And, you know, in this story, you kind of know, like, Jacob, Jacob is a, uh, you, you, you need to lose. And he, get, he walks away with a limp, you know? There, um, there's a joke in the jiu-jitsu community that, um, that Jacob must have known jiu-jitsu because there's no other way that he could have wrestled with God all night and not lost. <laughs> yeah. I, I love that story. Just, just for, the, for the record, I, I rolled for about a year when I was 30. And uh, I'm one of the original uh, UFC fans from... Uh, Hoist Gracie on up, and uh, so I got uh, over a year's period. I got a couple hyperextended elbows and uh, one broken rib, <laughs> but it was fun. I'm glad I did it. I, yeah, but I, I do like that the the idea that we are allowed to wrestle with whatever that is you call God, higher power, consciousness, divine light. I mean, there there's an invitation. So this thing that is infinitely beyond you is saying, bring it. I, I enjoy that process. I think we have to be careful, though, because, um, and probably people are tired of hearing this, but you're in a fighting discipline and you have that relationship with your mentor, but I would not want someone in a church to ever have any of those relationships with their pastor. Mm. They're, that sounds so toxic and abusive to me. And I'm not, I'm not saying that we can't have spiritual mentors that push us and um, challenge us and cause us to examine our own uh, blind spots and failings. I think that's absolutely good. But when you, when you, the, the, I think the problem is the thing that, that was hard is, but most believers that are participating in a religion in America don't have enough knowledge to know to say stop. 
And, and that's the piece that terrifies me. Um, because they get run over and they feel like they have to defend this thing and that, that the church is always right. And so I'm going to just take it because that's just the way it is and, and get through it. And, um, and I know that all metaphors have flaws. So I know that's not what you meant. Um, but I, it, it brings that up in me because I think, I think there, I've just watched a lot of people be hurt by these kinds of things because they don't know any better. They don't know that church is supposed to be different. And I think God too, like even with, I mean, I think Jacob was an ass, so forgive me, Pam. Um, I probably don't understand it well enough, um, but like he needed to be knocked down a peg. Um, and, but I, I, I have a hard time believing in a God that would hurt me. I don't, I don't want to be partnered with that. I mean, I think there's a lot of people that have been wounded and abused and hurt in our world that the thought of a God that would physically punish you or um, would want bad for you, like, I don't want a relationship with that God. I guess I don't read it that way. I read more of like with this um, whole historical lens that we have throughout the scriptures from the patriarchs on through the kings and you know, before that you have the judges you see these people trying, I guess, trying to have this relationship with this God, but failing miserably. So they're almost like, these are just natural. You want to use the word karma, just it's human yeah. karma, right? These are things like if you make these choices, A, B, and C will happen. Here's, this is what happens if you choose, you know, prudently, here's some wisdom. And this is what happens when you sacrifice your kids to idols. Oh, Bad true. shit's going to yeah. happen. Yeah. And, but the way I read that story of Jacob wrestling with the, whatever is more along the lines of like the angel could have just killed him at any moment. Sure. But actually chose to engage in the like wrestling match as a, I mean, it's sort of like an honor of Jacob's dignity in some senses that he even gave Jacob a chance to like, not that Jacob was going to win, but that sort of, going back to your jujitsu analogy that, and you talking about these people who are better than you giving you this window of opportunity. Not that, you know, if they wanted to at any moment, they could just end the fight right there, but to make it more interesting, maybe even to make it more fun. And I'm not, I wouldn't necessarily apply the word fun to the whole Jacob and an angel thing, but they allow the, struggle to continue for the sake of you learning in the through the process of the struggle and maybe so, the same so I'll say is this true. as long as there's mutual consent and full knowledge of both parties totally okay with that but the problem is the inequality if we're talking about church leaders and people there's a huge inequality there between of consent because yeah. and power, I, I, but I think if you have like like you said the mutual respect with both parties, so, so I'm going to put myself under this this rabbinical this priest this pastor's leadership, knowing that they have my best interest in mind for the well being of myself and my family. Uh, I, I think that that is a good thing. Can it be abused? Yes, and that's part of the risk. But I think you, we've talked about unhealthy leaders. But I, I do believe that there are healthy leaders out there that actually care for the people, just like within jujitsu. They actually want you to succeed. 
I, I mean, probably well, bad I think, ones too. But. I think the key to a healthy leader is that if you bring them a concern or a pushback or a question, they're, they're happy to have that conversation with you, not reply with, well, that's in the manual and you're not allowed to do that. Yes. Like, right. Right. Like there, if there's willingness there, that's one thing. Yeah. What is, I guess all I'm asking is what is that? You're making this analogy to like a church leader and a parishioner sort of in this sort of wrestling match. And I don't understand quite what you mean. I mean, can you give me more concrete example of what you mean by that? Well, I was, I was kind of responding to Nathan's, um, relationship with his mentors, like, like in, in that relationship for him to be safe, they, they have mutual consent. I have a word that I say that says stop. And I trust that you're not going to hurt me. Yeah. Many congregation members don't have the knowledge to look at someone and realize that they're being abused. Okay. Okay. So, um, and I think one of those places that this has been exacerbated was in, in the eighties, the nineties, the two thousands, the push away from mental health support, counseling's bad, psychology's bad. So there are huge swaths of, of people in congregations, probably not just in Protestant denominations that don't understand personality disorders. They don't understand mental illness. They don't understand abuse and its definition and how it's, how it's named. And so when they, are in that situation themselves with a toxic leader. They don't know how to name that. And then that becomes integrated into their view of God, their view of community, their view of what faith should look like. And that's what I'm objecting to because there, then you're in an unequal system where you have money, power, and control running things from up top. And you have people down below that what they've been taught and trained to do and socialized to do is to just agree and to make it work and to forgive and give grace. And there's no ability for them to actually object and say, I don't understand. This doesn't seem right. Something seems wrong here. There's no mutual consent. I agree. So there's that, uh, to me, the difference there is one describes a fascist sort of si- a system of fascism, essentially, an authoritarian leader dictating to those below him. Um, whereas I feel like the story of Jacob and the story of Jiu-Jitsu is more about two people sitting down at a chessboard. Now, one person may be a master, the other person a, a five-year-old, um, you know, novice, but they both have freedom to move their pieces within the confines of the game. Can I um, Can I say that I just love that we're just digging into this extended jujitsu analogy all my dreams have come true (laughs) so um what i would say is that in the analogy what you're talking about is like going to a school where as a white belt the black belt just chokes people all day and never teaches them anything and i would spend like maybe five seconds in that school before i'm like this is awful, right? I need to get out of here. But, but you're pointing out how the mental control structures of, you know, if you teach people, you know, if you leave, you're as good as damned. So you, so, so there's, that's a lot different than you. There's no real analogy there, right? Okay. Um, 
one of the things that I love about jujitsu is that the professor has to get on the mat and show that what he's telling you works. If he can't get on the mat and demonstrate to all of his students that what he's saying, he has to have skin in the game, right? And that's missing, I think, from a lot of churches, partially because the way that they structure the conversation is by talking about a lot of things that don't actually have any bearing in the real world. So they don't have any skin in the game because they're not talking about anything real. They're just talking about a lot of abstract concepts and you need to say these words in this order in your mind, like we were talking about before with the the checklist, right? Say these words in this order and you'll be saved forever. Your soul is in good condition. You know, you can, you can use this as an armor to get through all the suffering that you're going to go through in life. But I think a much, a much more, living Christianity is where the things that you're learning in your church actually have an impact on your life. The people that you talk to at church are people that you would want to be like, right? You don't go, you don't go ask somebody whose life is also a miserable disaster. What would you do in my situation? Because you wouldn't want to know what they'd, but, but that's what happens. I think in a lot of these places where people just segregate reality from the teaching and, and, they don't have to, their lives don't have to reflect the truth of their teaching because they're saving all of their rewards for the afterlife. And so their actual life, I mean, you know, the pastor has a nice life because he's making a six figure salary or a seven figure salary, but the people who are trying to, <laughs> I assume you got an eight figure salary. <laughs> when you said seven, <laughs> Ryan woke man. up, man, Ryan woke up. What just happened? <laughs> Come on. Well, I assume, I'm going to sell out for that church. I assume Joel Osteen is making at least seven He's figures, gotta be, right? Yeah. That wasn't a personal crusade. Just just the idea of the the leader who doesn't actually have to put his, his teaching into practice in any meaningful way. He's telling other people how to deal with their suffering, but he doesn't have to deal with the same suffering that they're going through. And, and there's no real good reason for them to believe that what he's teaching them is going to make their lives any better. It's going to make their soul any, is going to take their soul any closer to Christ. You know, one of the other things that I, I mean, Pam talked about this a lot was that in the old Testament, the Jews are constantly wrestling with God and bargaining with God. Right. And even in the, the, the Mishnah, is that the right word? The, uh, the sort of extra, extra textual rabbinical additions. There's more stories of Jews arguing with God and, um, the hard thing so the difference between the church leader that you're talking about and God is that we don't have a relationship of consent with God. You know, things are always happening to us that we didn't consent to. And we feel that, that, that in some sense God is in control. So that's very difficult to come to grasp with. We want our leaders to be accountable uh, to the things that they say and to have relationships of consent with them. But maybe that's another aspect of the fear of God is that we never know when a flood is going to just wipe our house off the map or somebody that we love dearly is going to get cancer at an early age and we're going to have to deal with that. And how do we, you know, how do you grapple with God when you don't get to choose the relationship that you have with him? Theodicy. That's another podcast. The problem of evil. Is God really in control? Hmm. Okay. Sure. One thing, short answers. What are some ways that we can combat the overall sense of fear in our culture? We're thinking. Reach We're out thinking. Reach out to the perceived others, right? How about just not live in fear? Watch more Olympics. <laughs> Sorry, Jeff. Turn off the news. 
I would say embrace your fear. Embrace your fear until you're not scared of it anymore. Yeah, I would say one of the big things for me is to to have a conversation across the table with somebody that like is completely different from you. And I think all the online stuff that we see will go away. Um, I think we'll tr- treat people very differently when it's face-to-face. Question the motivation of the information. Love each other. Sing in the rain. Just <laughs> sing. All right, that was a good time, guys. Cheers to Cheers. everybody here. Cheers. Thank you, everybody.